Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we host a very special conversation with Miss Lisa Sharon Harper. There may not be a better person to launch this season because Miss Harper is one of the great thought leaders of modern day activism. She runs and founded an organization called Freedom Road, which is a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation. We'll talk more about the narrative gap in the interview, but they design experiences that bring together common understanding and common commitment and action. You know, there are some people who sometimes call themselves thought leaders, but you realize that what they're really doing is repackaging all of the best thoughts, and there's a place for that. But Miss Harper is a special kind of thought leader. She is able to bring together a deep knowledge of U.S. world history, as well as her own history, as well as theology and governmental affairs, and she is able to bring all of these streams of thought together and create something brand new. As we launched into this conversation, the first question I asked was something very gushing, like, you're one of the preeminent activists, and she was you know, pushing back, understandably, and I said, no, but you're like such an important activist. What makes you, you? What makes Lisa? And here is her answer. First of all, let me just say thank you so much. I, I would I would not describe myself that way, but I would actually, I mean, there there are so many heroes of the faith who are um, who are absolutely uh, uh, a cloud. We are all a cloud of witnesses of this moment in our in our yeah. nation and in our world. And as we move together, we are movement. We are movement. Um, and um, so, in terms of okay, so so what made me me? <laughs> um, it's like a funny question, but I, I actually took a course um, back in two thousand and one, I believe, maybe it was two thousand, and it was at um, at Fuller Seminary, and it was called Lifelong Development, and it was with a man named Dr. Bobby Clinton. No relationship oh. to Bill Clinton, ironically. Okay. Um, okay. But he was a leadership guru kind of guy. And what he did was he helped people to understand kind of how God was shaping them and the moments that they're in right then, and but also, you know, how they can look back over the course of their lives and actually see forward by looking back, which is interesting because that's, that's an African um, uh, concept that is encapsulated in the word Sankofa. The Sankofa bird literally looks back in order to move forward. And so I actually, I just... Just for my own upbringing, I do look back. You can't understand who I am until you understand my ancestors. So you understand yes. um, where they came from and how they plowed the road for who I am. Um, and and it's ironically, it's actually the con the content of my next book is to look oh. back on all of the different um, trees of my family and, and and share one major story in order to understand where we are as a nation. Because interestingly enough, my family has really um, had a, a, a stake in multiple different pieces and parts of American history, going all the way back to the 1680s. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Colonial America. And in fact, one of my, one of my aunts, well, my, the earliest ancestors that we know, um, and we believe that we are connected to them because of DNA evidence, but also because of our, of one of the last names in our family tree traces back to them or can, um, uh, is this amazing couple, um, Maudlin McGee, who was Ulster Irish and a man they named Sambo game and they had an affair yes they did hello somebody and and maudlin was already married to a man named george but they had maudlin and sambo had a child and their child's name was fortune and fortune was born in 1687 at exactly the time within this like 40 year period where the constructs the legal constructs of race were being formed in America, and they were being formed in, a, in in Maryland, specifically around the question of mixed race children, who were children of white women who had, you know, gotten it on with black men. And it was, I, interestingly enough, it was a big problem for the white men there. They were like, how do we stop this? So they decided to legislate against it. And the big piece, the, the people who bore the biggest penalty were the children. So my I think she's 10 times great-grandmother. Fortune was indentured until she was 31 years old. And then because she was most likely raped in the course of being indentured, um, her child was then indentured because that's how they got free labor was by raping the help. And then the law, the help was always mixed race or black. Um, And by law, um, their children would then have to be indentured. And if it was if the rape was by a white man, the, the child would be endangered till they're 21. If it was by a black man, like you know, if she had an affair with a black man who was enslaved on that plantation or something, then the child would be endangered yes. until they were 31. So it was it was in that time period and through those particular laws that the constructs of race were created in America. And my family was a part of that. They literally, the course of my family's future was shaped by that. Um, and it's not only that, the the family, all these different limbs of the family tree stretch into the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the annexation of Puerto Rico and slavery in the Caribbean and the Great Migration and Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. My mom was a member of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But that's, I mean, this is these, yeah, this yeah. is the soil that produced me. And, but it's not only that. It's it is it's not just the okay that they were part of this, but it's the actual the details of the oppression. When I think back to one strain of my family in particular, I am amazed and grieved to understand that every single woman on that limb of our family, every single one was either raped or or molested by someone inside or outside oh. of the family, by white and black people. Um, and it's just, I mean, so now imagine the brokenness that is passed down from yeah, generation you, to generation to generation. And that yeah. includes, what does that mean? What is that? How do you carry that? Yeah, please go. So Sorry. the process of healing for me, my life with Jesus, probably one of the most significant portions of my life with Jesus was in the 1990s when I was coming to terms with the depth of the brokenness in myself. And I was going through a process of what they call inner healing prayer around this, around the lies that I had come to believe about myself 
as a result of the abuse. And also not just the abuse, just, you know, everyday human brokenness that came into my life over the course of the years. And it was, and so my relationship with Jesus was one that was formed as much as it was formed in dealing with issues of race and justice and and understanding systems, which mostly came later in the earlier days of my faith with Jesus. It was very much about my healing, the healing of the brokenness that was heaped upon me from generation to generation. Um, And I remember, I literally remember in one prayer time, where this kind of all became clear, and my my very good friend um, who was praying with me, um, she got the image of a snowball kind of going through the gener- generations, a slow, snowball of sin, a snowball of brokenness, and the uh, picture of the cross kind of coming down in in me and stopping that snowball from moving forward. Oof. And and you know because of the the power of the cross and the resurrection in my life, and so. You know, so so going back to that course um, with with Bobby Clinton, I did like our very first um, exercise was to go back through our lives and what was going on the year we were born at the time we were born. Um, what are the things that God has written on the blackboard of our life concerning everything? And what I found were four major themes that kind of kept coming up. One was leadership. Another one was racial reconciliation and justice and healing. Another one was the arts. Um, so I was a playwright before I was ever an activist or a public theologian. Yes. And yeah, and um, and 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 such. <laughs> so those are uh, and yes. and then theology as well, like the depth and and just I love scripture. I love scripture, and I'm led by the scripture. Because um, I believe it's one of the prime ways that, that God uh, teaches us what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God. So, so, yeah. so before you had that class with Mr. Clinton, did you, were you always, uh, did you always have such a, a, a bold voice? Were you that kid on the playground that was defending people and seeing what was wrong? Did you always have the, 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 the bravery that you exhibit now, or is that a thing that I, I'm just curious how that before you were able to put a name mm. to it, you were able to go through the whole narrative like you just did. How mm. was it exercised in who you were? That's really interesting. I mean, I think that ironically for me, I was just laughing about this with a friend and it's not, it's not laughable. It's actually, it's weepable, but you laugh in order not to weep, right? Like when I was in grade school, I was the one who was bullied. Oh, dear. I was the person who... <laughs> that crushed it. That's, it is. Yeah. It does crush the soul. Yeah. It literally does. And in fact, a lot of that inner healing prayer was was done in order to heal from that brokenness, the brokenness of being bullied. But I was the kid who literally paid the bully 25 cents a day to be my friend and still got beat up. Like (laughs) it was that, it was that bad. So think about the brokenness, right? That that'll bring into somebody, the lies they believe about themselves and all. So thank God for Jesus in my life. I don't know who or where I would be had it not been for, for God's intervention um, bringing a personal relationship with Jesus into my life, um, thanking Jesus even right now for that. That's true, true salvation. Yeah. But I think that, you know, in terms of bold voice, one of those threads in terms of racial healing and racial reconciliation um, goes for me, I, I can trace that back. Well, the bold voice, my mom was in SNCC. She was in that Black Power movement. Right. You know, she literally dated Stokely Carmichael for a minute, right? And <laughs> apparently they were they were actually kind of, 
serious with each other, at least wow. a little bit. I know. I didn't, I didn't know that. And so I met Ruby Sales and she was the one who told me, your mom was, I said, really? She never really got into all that with mm-hmm. us. But, <laughs> but, you know, so that and in our family line, um, we, uh, we, we just, we have had people who have been deeply connected in with streams of, um, of the movement for black freedom um, going back to the beginning. And I think that the movement for black freedom um it really does trace its times to the individual machinations, machinations rather, that um, that people of African descent went through in order to find freedom before they even had enough people to organize or, you know, uh, before they, they understood that insurrections were not going to work on this land because they kept getting pushed down, but they kept trying. And um, so, you know, the large, because of our, our, history of being indentured in Maryland in the early, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, that line of the family actually was free in Virginia um, throughout the, throughout, from the time, like the mid 1700s and all the way through the civil war. So, um, and fought in the revolutionary war and, and, and the rest. And so there's a sense of, um, of dignity that, I, I understand that my ancestors held um, because they were able to realize a measure of the image of God, the call of, of God for them to exercise stewardship of the world, to make decisions that impact their land. They owned land. The women owned land. The men owned land um, back in the, in the 1700s. Um, so there's a, there's a level of, of, an understanding within our bloodline that has been passed down in our family that you are not here to be ruled. You are here to help guide and help heal the world. Um, and, and so that's, that's a part of who I am. Um, the, the, the subjugation though of the other lines is also part of who I am. When I think about my father's history and his his line that, that stretches to the Caribbean, and they were all here in America by 1930. But before that, they were in Puerto Rico, and before that, they were in Saint Kitts Nevis and all over the Caribbean. They, they they island hopped in order to find work. But when I did research, you know, for this next book about slavery in the Caribbean, I literally I was literally moved to tears. Oh. Um, I wept because. Ooh, we do not even understand here. I mean, no. the slavery in America was her, any slavery is horrific. To enslave one person, to take away the capacity of one person to exercise dominion over their lives and over their families is oppression. It is horrific. And then you look at the slavery that happened in the Caribbean and also Brazil. I was just recently there. So that helps me to understand by looking at their story as well. Um, the life expectancy of a person, an African person who was brought to Brazil, to the Caribbean in, a, in the bowels of a slave ship after landing on the land in the Caribbean was one year. Wow. The life, life expect- expectancy. They would only expect them to live one more year after they got there. But they had a steady stream. So they just just kept streaming Africans to to work them in the sugarcane mills, to work to work them on the sugarcane land, and to expend them and then get more. And that so it is literally a miracle 
that my family survived that. It is a miracle. It is. It is. And when I so now I look at my family and I think we are a miracle, but we are also deeply, deeply broken by the by the pathologies that are passed down from generation to generation. Um, just like the scripture says, the sin of the father will be passed down to the third and fourth generation. Yes. Well, that's the same with slavery. That if you if you look at the the father being the the authority figure, the authority figure were the slaveholders, and they absolutely they tortured, they literally tortured the human beings that they bought to exploit, and so that torture then um, is passed down. And, and in my family was passed down from generation to generation upon the children. And it's really only our generation, literally the Gen Xers that are, we are only the second generation in the United States um, that were born here in the United States and the first generation um, uh, to have some perspective that didn't have direct we we were not directly abused by those who had come from the Caribbean who knew that that culture. Um, we had the benefit of of growing up in an era where there was psychology and people could actually go to counseling. And um, yes. but but you know there's 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 deep brokenness that comes from that. And so you know so the the book that I'm writing is actually about how do we repair what race broke in the world. That's yes. the question of the book, and we're looking at it through the framework of my family story. Okay, there's so much to ask from what you just said. I think the first is, I've always been curious about this this passing down of this brokenness. Yeah. And how, how did, because I, I feel like I know, but I'm, you've thought about this more than anyone, how did what happened to Fortune make its way to you practically? Like, I know that there's something like deep, in, but like, how does it actually yeah. make its way from generation to generation? Wow, that's a really great question. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, when I look back at, at Fortune and I look back at um, Sarah, her daughter, um, who I believe is my uh, nine times great grandmother. Um, and I then I look to um, to her children, and and that's where it starts to get a little bit fuzzy. I've been talking with the with the genealogist who has really marked them, uh, like been tracing that family, and even he doesn't know exactly how they moved from Maryland to Virginia, but he knows they did, and and my ancestors were absolutely right there, right in that in that space um, with them, and so uh, you know I mean I think that it's a combination. It's absolutely a combination of I mean, to understand that the man that they named Sambo most likely came from Benin, Africa, or maybe Nigeria, since they're they're bordering each other. And I just got my DNA back, and it actually traces oh, me. Yeah, it actually traced me um, on my mom's line through the mothers. So it definitely wouldn't include Sambo. Sambo was a man, so it doesn't include yes. him. But yes. um, but I do know that the original Africans who came into into Maryland were mostly from Benin, Africa. Um, oh. And Ancestry.com actually does trace my, uh, the majority of my African um, DNA comes from there, according to Ancestry.com. So, <laughs> so anyway, yes, yes. Um, so Sambo, um, he was one who was enslaved when he was here, but he did not die a slave. Um, oh. the, the man who owned him um, in the latter part of his life after Fortune, um, he actually freed Sambo and his wife upon his death 
and um, and not only freed him, but also gave him full use of his land. He couldn't, Sambo could not own the land because of the law that they had passed um, in the interim, but he could actually be on the land. And then eventually, years later, um, one of Sambo's daughters and one of Fortune's um, uh, Fortune's sister um, actually bought land very close to it. And so I think that, I think one thing that I, I was blown away with, um, oh, there's also a really awesome story about Fortune's sister, Bet, um, Betty. She's actually, there's literally tax records. Like there's a, a document where um, one of the tax guys who came through to to collect the extra tax that they had on black free black women. If you were a free black women, you had to pay an oh. extra tax. So apparently, awesome. right? Like, right? <laughs> so this is again, wow. it's again kind of Oof. how the construct of race was created. And here is one of my ancestors, Betty. She literally like ran that tax collector off her land and said, no, hell no, we are not paying that tax. This is wrong. This is in the 1880s or seven early, no, sorry, seven uh, mid-1700s. She ran him off and just refused to pay the tax. So she, we had protesters back in the 1700s. I mean, that just blew my mind when I, when I read that story. I was like, what? Oh my God. You know, so yes. I think that, I mean, I see that, um, I see, I see the, the reality that, um, on another line of the family, um, the, the Lawrence family, um, they fought in the civil war, four brothers fought in the civil war. They were all half white, half black. And, um, uh, I used to think that they were actually Cherokee and, and black, but I actually don't think that anymore after doing more research. Um, but my uh, second time's great-grandfather, Henry, and his three other brothers all fought in the Civil War and all survived. Um, and they all owned land in, um, in Kentucky for generations and then Indiana. And Henry ended up marrying a woman named Harriet who was Cherokee. The Cherokee lineage comes through her, not through Henry, as I thought. And, um, and, and they survived like that. We were survivors. Um, and then I look at Leah Ballard, who was the last adult slave in our family and her story. And the fact that she lost multiple children to childbirth because they didn't have hospitals that would accept black people. And, and then her great grandchild, Elizabeth is my great grandmother. And Elizabeth said, forget this, I'm not doing this anymore. And she picked up and her her way of resisting the oppression of Jim Crow was to leave in the Great Migration. And she went north. And she 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 was light enough to pass because she was only about one eighth black. She was um, you know, given wow. all of the different mixing and raping that had happened in our family. She was only one eighth black. So she took her lightest child and she determined that she was going to make a better life for her children, all of them, but she had to leave two behind. And my grandmother was one of them. And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, I hate to, I could really seriously go into all of this, but no, this is... <laughs> I, I think, I think that what I find you, your question was, what's the through line. And I, I think there are lots of through lines, but one of them that I find is, is, is the determination to be like water and get around the rock. Be like oh. water. That's really, that's my yes. motto. Be like water and get around the rock. Um, the rock is not, you will not be stopped by the rock. Water, water is more powerful than rock, actually. How does it feel then to be the person who, by your own admission, is 
breaking a generational cycle. I mean, you're the one where the snowball rolls downhill and you blow up the snowball, mm-hmm. right? Like, how does it feel to know that in this deep lineage that goes and spans countries and such massive sweeping crushing injustice, how does it how does it how does it feel for you to be that for your family line? Mm-hmm. Like you will change the story. Your great 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 grandchildren will look and say, then there was this woman <laughs> who, and this is when the narrative changed. How how do you reconcile that? Well, I mean, I think that it's, it's you know, I wish it was that. I wish it was that clear. I think that I, yeah, I okay. do. I mean, I, the reality, look, when you look, I am not married. I do not have children. Yeah. I have never had children. Yes. And I just turned 50. And I own all of who I uh-huh. am. And I wanted to have kids. It's not because I didn't want to have kids. I wanted to get married. Right. I still want to get married. But I know that that's not going to happen yes. for me. So in some ways, honestly, the snowball of sin won by by through the through the through the sin that got me as a child um, through sexual exploitation, not exploitation, but sexual abuse, and that that then caused me to make choices throughout my life that left me without a husband you know at this point and and so and i own that and i understand that and and i look back and i go yep okay that that like that person was broken because that person's father was broken and that person's father is broken because that father's person's father's father was broken and that person's father's father was broken by slavery i got it i understand it i get it and so that so, you know, yes, there's anger. Yes, there's rage. But there's also the reality that God redeems all things. And I also know that there's no way that I would be able to be who I am and do what I do if I did have children or likely if I was married um, at the age when I really wanted to be at 20 years old. You know, so, yeah. so uh, yeah, God's redemption is real. Yeah. And at the same time, the impact and the, the cost of sin is real. And I think I hold both of those in me. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I said it incorrectly as as if there was a genetic component to it, like your great 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 grandchildren. And I said that, but I, I feel like there is also a part when I look at your. I mean, I didn't know any of this, and I don't know how I missed it in interview prep. And maybe I should just wait for your next book. But <laughs> That's okay. I, and knowing and knowing and knowing any of this backstory, yeah. you have spoken though. I mean, you've changed the lives. And again, you'll just probably shrug this away because your humility will <laughs> demand it. But the, you you have changed the lives through your writing, through your leadership, through your work at Sojourners and now Freedom Road. Like y- you have changed the life, you have changed the narrative for thousands and thousands and thousands of other people. Does that at all? St- I mean, yeah. There's something in me that says, okay, it may not be you broke the mm. genetic cycle, but there are a huge number of people who are realizing their own truth and breaking their own stories cycle because of what you have both suffered and then joyfully decreed Thank into the world. Thank you so much for that. I really do. I Maybe actually, let me say, I hear that and, and I receive that. Yeah. And I, and, and I think that um, they, they often say that, you know, it's the wounded healers, right? Who heal the world. And I am a wounded and I, I'm a wounded person who, and I pray and I hope that, that I heal. And I do believe that one of the purposes I was put on earth was to be a healer. My mom is a nurse, interestingly enough. <laughs> She's always said I'd make a really huh. great nurse. Isn't I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, it's not really for me. But, but, 
that I, that I do <laughs> right, right. through the work that I do, my, my, my goal in life is to be one of the people who helps heal the world. And, and, and also the, one of the goals of my ministry is to help heal the church, right? Because I think that the church itself has been broken and honestly has been colonized um, in the same way that my family was colonized. And and the faith itself has been colonized in the same way that my family was colonized, controlled. The narrative has been controlled and manipulated in order and exploited in order to to protect the power of the of of a few and of a particular group of people. Um, and it's it's done and it's so ironic. I mean, one of the most amazing things that I've I've been considering since writing the Very Good Gospel um, was the reality that not one person in the entire Bible, not one of the writers of the entire Bible was from Europe, not even one. And yet all of our major authorities that we turn to are from Europe. How could that be? <laughs> why? Okay. Why is that? And there's there's something yes. very very wrong with with the reality that our faith springs from the faith of brown colonized indigenous people. Jesus was a brown colonized indigenous man who's who's whose lineage went back thousands of years on that land, and. And it was the Europeans, it was the Romans who came and colonized them. And now it's the people in Europe who get to be the main interpreters of Jesus's story. Something's not right there. Something's not right there. So I actually think that the main, for me, there were two points when I believe my liberation happened. So I would say that there's kind of a before pilgrimage, Lisa, and after pilgrimage, Lisa. <laughs> and and then there's yes, yes. there's also a before being arrested, Lisa, and an after being arrested, Lisa. And this goes back to your question of where did this yes. bold voice come from? Um, I think before pilgrimage, I was very, very much, very much captured, I believe, by the constructs, the logics of the colonizer. Um, the four spiritual laws was my favorite thing, not the Bible, the four spiritual laws. I, my understanding of the gospel was fundamentally shaped by a gold booklet written by a white man, an American white man, <laughs> not by yeah. the book yeah. Yeah. of the Bible, the 50 some odd books of the Bible that were written by brown colonized indigenous people who were all of them struggling under the force of colonization or trying to avoid being colonized. All of them, that was their main, even David and Solomon, who were kings, were not kings of empires. They were kings of one little dinky kingdom that kept getting sacked by empires. So when I asked, when I began to ask that, that pilgrimage that I took through the American South, it actually helped me to begin kind of really, really doing some deep work on, on my family history because we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in America from slavery to civil rights. That for me was one of those unlocking periods where I walked on the land where my ancestors were oppressed and began to ask the harder questions of my own faith. And it was there that I began to ask the question, what does my understanding of the gospel have to say to this? And it came up mute. It came up literally having nothing to say to it because it was not 
crafted to say anything to it because it was not crafted by Jesus. It was crafted by Bill Bright. It was not crafted by Jesus. It was crafted by white men. And white men do not have an interest in my liberation. White men have an interest in maintaining their own power, their own sense of, of their own patriarchy. And so so when I yes. when I um, did the deep work now, we're done, we're talking about 13 years of marinating in Genesis, the book of Genesis, because that for me is where the concept of shalom kind of was 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 seeded and where you could really see it clearly in the Garden of Eden and before that in Genesis one in the in, that, in the creation epic poem about creation. Um, it was in the in the study of that first chapter of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, that I began to discover the the import, the importance of the doctrine of the image of God. And then began to ask questions about well, what do our laws say we believe about the doctrine of the image of God, that, that God created all humanity in the image of God, every single human being, every single human being is made in the image of God. Therefore, every single human being has the inherent dignity that we would normally ascribe only to kings and queens, the royalty, the 1%. What does it say that God in that same breath connects being made in God's image with being called to exercise dominion in the world, being called to help steward the world, being called to cultivate, to protect, to serve the world, that every single human being on earth was given that divine call upon creation. What does it say that then we have created laws and constructs like race, um, laws about gender, about immigration and who can be, who can actually exercise dominion in America by being, by becoming a naturalized citizen. We have literally crafted a world that says a lie, that says that God has only created and divinely called European men to exercise dominion on this land. And it's that, that declaration through some, many of our founding documents that the Civil War was about, that the suffragist movement was about, that, that Jim Crow was about, that the Civil Rights Movement was about, that the Environmental Justice Movement is about, that LGBTQ movement is about, because it's, it's fundamentally about who do we consider to be human? Because all the first page of the Bible tells us, if you are human, then you are called by God to exercise dominion in the world. And so, you know, when I realized the first, on the first page of the Bible, you have people who are coming out of slavery, 70 years of slavery, if you believe it was the priests coming out of Babylon, hundreds of years of slavery, if you believe it was Moses who wrote that text. It's in that context that they then make this revolutionary declaration that all humanity is made in the image of God. Miss Harper, there are, I mean, I'll, uh, I think sometimes people will listen to what you just said and they will say, well, that's not me. She's talking generally about like them, but you're, you're speaking in like, like when you're saying white men are not interested in, you, they are interested in power. You really are speaking, you're like speaking about all white guys, right? Because what I want, what I don't want is for people listening to disconnect and say, no, I'm not a part of this. She's not, she's not really talking about me 
I'm different. She's talking about like others. Yeah. I, I'm okay, curious, that's a good like, how do you, re- how do you respond to that? Cause I don't want people to disconnect. I don't think that race has anything to do with you or any individual. It's not about you. It's about the constructs and the, and the systems and the structures that were put in place in order, in order to protect and preserve the power and the control of people of European descent who are male. And so if you are, I think, you know, Chris Rice said this way back in the day, he said he realized, um, Chris Rice, who was um, with Voice of Calvary down in Mississippi and um, has been uh, somebody who has been invested in the racial reconciliation struggle since the 1980s, I believe, you know, he said, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. If you are not actively working to dismantle those systems and structures, then you are, by definition, uh, co-signing them and benefiting from them. And, you know, things like the Homestead Act, the Homestead Act is, and the GI Bill, both of those are, are structures that created the American middle class and were specifically create, crafted in ways that only white men could really benefit from them. Yes. Um, and that was, that was intentional on the part of the person who wrote the GI Bill. He was an avowed segregationist, mm-hmm. and he wrote it in a way that made it so that even black GIs could not actually, most black GIs could not actually um, garner the benefits of that bill. And so you have immediately um, structurally baked into our society an, an economic inequity that was intentional. <laughs> and then you have the FHA loans, right? So FHA loans back in the 30s, when they when they put that that program together, then our government, um, yes. which had avowed segregationists at the top of it in this in in um, the Federal Housing Authority, they created a formula that determined that um, if if a neighborhood had a particular percentage of people of African descent in that neighborhood, then that neighborhood immediately, regardless of the condition of the homes or the size of the homes or anything, that neighbor that, that land was immediately worth less. I mean, it was a government-created uh, formula that we lived according to until the 1960s. So you had at least three, four decades of home ownership or lack of home ownership that where people built wealth or weren't able to build wealth because of low, um, low, low land values and schooling that then suffered because the way that the that our our nation set up its schooling system, schools are funded by home uh, by land taxes, and so those land taxes, if you've already valued the land less just because somebody of a darker hue lives on it, you're immediately setting up an education system that is. And it's going to be inherently inequitable. And it's going to have inequitable futures that are forecast for the people in those zip codes, which is why we have the situation we have right now, where, um, where the public school system has been abandoned by people of, um, of, who, of European descent, and especially evangelicals, who abandoned it first um, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and pulled their kids out of those, out of those schools and said, we're going to set up what we call race schools. And those race schools eventually became Christian schools. And those Christian schools are some of the whitest places on earth right now, outside of Europe. 
So, so, you know, yeah. Okay. So you don't, you, you like black people. That's great. But what are you doing to, to confront and tear down the constructs that create racialized inequity? That's my question. That is the question. That is the question. And, and it really s- feels like just as you have done tremendous work to explore your own narrative. I mean, I ask you about little Lisa and you <laughs> yes. took me through centuries of your family's history. It's like you, you don't exist That's outside right. of the truth of your history. That's exactly and right. Nor do I. Like as a totally white European guy sitting here chatting with you, I don't, even though I may be woke and realize stuff and have a deeper understanding and read all the right books, I still don't exist out of the context of my generations. I, I think that it's, 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 it's vitally imperative that if our nation is going to be healed from the ways that race broke the world, that people of European descent begin to do their own ancestry work to understand their own stories. Because the thing is, is that they've been honestly lied to about who their ancestors were in, in, the, in the large wash of things. And they were actually told to erase their ethnic heritage in order to claim the power of whiteness when they got here. So when ethnic groups came from Europe, many of them were not considered white. I mean, for decades or even, even more than a century, the Irish, when they came, were not considered white. Not the Scotch-Irish, but the Irish. Um, uh, the Germans, when they came, were not considered white. Armenians were not considered white. Um, all of these groups had to actually fight their way, either fight their way all the way up through the Supreme Court to have the Supreme Court deem that they are white, or they had to earn their whiteness by fighting and dying in wars. and. Like, for example, the Irish only became recognized as being white when they came back from World War II and were able to, um, to, to, uh, to benefit from the GI Bill. And it was in that moment that the Irish became white. But until then, they were actually imagined in the same way that people of European descent, uh, white men who were the, the ruling class, imagined black people as animals. Um, the women were seen as butch, them, as in like men. Um, you know, with muscles and not feminine and able to work and be exploited, in other words, right? So, so the constructs of whiteness are real. And that, the construct of whiteness is not something that is God-given. It is government-given. And it is given by a government who is, that is operating according to the lie of human hierarchy. And so I, as, a, as a person of faith, as an as a evangelical woman who actually believes the scripture and actually believes in the capacity of, of Jesus on the cross to transform the world and the capacity of the resurrection to, to reverse the fall, I actually believe that it is actually simple. All we actually need to do is repent. All we actually need to do is to face the truth, to have that moment of reckoning of our sin, of the of the very least, our sinful beliefs in the hierarchy of human belonging, and repent and see the image of God in all, and fan the flames of the image of God in all, and prepare the image of God in all to flourish 
so that all might be able to exercise dominion on our land. So much of what you're saying is what you and your team um, talk about and work mm-hmm. with in, in Freedom Road, an organization mm-hmm. that you you found and lead. Could you give us the, w- would you mind giving us the kind of the elevator speech of, of how you define Freedom Road? Sure. Well, Freedom Road exists to help people do justice more justly. And really, our main strategy for doing that is to shrink the narrative gap. So the narrative gap is that gap that exists between who we, who we actually are and who we think we are. It's the gap that, that exists between the narratives that different people groups tell ourselves about who we are and how we got here. And it creates unjust, nice. that gap is what creates unjust policies and unjust strategies for getting what I think we all want, which is peace. But what peace looks like for different for different groups is different. I think that for those who really ascribe to the Make America Great Again, generally speaking, that peace looks like a, a world that is ruled by people of European descent. That would bring them peace. But I think it's because they fundamentally believe in the hierarchies of human belonging. They fundamentally believe that God called people of European descent to rule, to, to lead the world. And so they don't believe that that people of African descent or Latino descent or Asian descent actually have the capacity to lead all into peace. And so it's, it is, it is a reconciliation with our history, a reconciliation with, with God and, and the scripture, a reconciliation with Jesus, who was a brown colonized indigenous man. And it's, it's that work that, that Freedom Road exists to lead um, groups, churches, nonprofits, businesses, government into um, upon ask. So we are a consulting group. We have more than 20 consultants that are able to be dobbed out and help different groups at different in different ways. How, how do you do that? Because I'm often... Uh, I'm often sometimes hesitant to reach out to some of the like the exact group of amazing diverse people who you employ and because I don't want to be that guy who's oh using other people to get like all woke about the world, right? Yet you and your team you blow like <laughs> Tell me, oh my goodness, does that seem weird? It does and it doesn't. I understand where it comes from. I think that a lot of a lot of people of European descent are yeah. um, are scared of scared of engaging with this thing called race and because it's been done wrong so much and who wants to be wrong right and especially when you've been in control for hundreds of years who's going to volunteer to be out of control right so to be not the person in control of the narrative but i think that the thing is is that fundamental to the to the question of healing what healing will require is actually releasing control and sharing power with those with, with the rest of us and, and sharing the power to shape the narrative and shape the world. Yeah, for me, it doesn't come from a place of being afraid to have my cage rattled, mm-hmm. although maybe I should re-examine myself and make sure that that statement's mm-hmm. true. But mostly it comes from, I feel like I don't want to use, like, I, I don't want to, to use other people for my own self-actualization, because I would imagine it's like, okay, yes, we'll answer your questions for the 10,000th time today about, you know, whatever we're talking about. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, and- I do. And actually, I would agree with that. Don't use us for your, self, like, for your self-actualization. There are lots of good movies you can watch in that case are great books you can read articles you can read podcasts you can listen to that in that case yeah, yeah. No, nobody no one is signing up to be used for anybody's self-actualization but but 
if you want to save your organization from becoming irrelevant in the next 20 years, because we are a browning nation, if you want to save your church from the flow of white evangelicals, young white evangelicals who are leaving because your church and denomination is refusing to give up control of, of the narrative of Jesus and, um, and refusing to allow questions to rise, if you want to actually deal with the question of the image of God in all and how systemically and structurally your institution can actually begin to be a blessing as opposed to a curse or a blessing as opposed to a passive curse, one that's not doing anything. And so then passively, you are not blessing, you are cursing um, those, those of the darker hue. Then the people who know the most about that are those who have actually experienced that oppression who have actually done the work in order to understand it from their side, from their side of this power equation. And so I would actually say that it's the smartest thing you could do. And it's also the most just thing you could do to move into relationship and into an agreement, a contractual agreement where people are getting paid for their work to be able to move the world towards the beloved community. Uh, I was chatting with a, with the with someone in a church the other day, and I I was asked, you know, why is it that some churches don't engage in the work of justice because they don't feel like it's the church's job? The church, like, there are some churches that still hold to like it's the church's mm-hmm. primary and only job mm-hmm. to win people for Jesus, like to use that old Christiany phrase, and that's it. And then they say, like, why are some mm-hmm. churches like that? And I flummoxed my way through some yeah. answer, but it's also. It's a real mm-hmm. thing. It's not just like the outsides of the bell curve churches. Mm-hmm. There's churches mm-hmm. and churches with kind people inside the walls who just don't believe that mm-hmm. justice and the church need to be, they can be two different entities. <laughs> um, I'm guessing mm-hmm. you don't think that's true. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. That's my guess. And my guess is that you would have a more nuanced answer than my answer, which was, you know, just rambling. H- how do you reply when you've, you've run into that? Well, I think that the question is, what is witness? What does it mean to be a witness in the world? That we were called in Acts to be a witness. We were um, we were told oh, that we right. will be witnesses at the, at the end of Matthew. And, you know, what does it mean to be a witness? It, it means to be evidence. It means to be evidence. Like that is literally the function of a witness in a trial. It is to be evidence. And what what evidence are we supposed to be being? We are evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And so if in our work, in our daily lives, in our families, in our interactions, in our voting, in our business, in the way we do business, in our public ethics, we are not evidence of the rule of God on earth, then we are not witnesses. And the church, the fundamental call of the church is to be a witness. And so the the work of witness in today's world, what is it? Then the question becomes, how do you, what are the implications of that call today? In today's world, the the our world is deeply divided, racially divided. We have formal um, uh, entrenchment of ideologies of white supremacy and white nationalism. Well, what does it mean that the rule of God is here, that the kingdom and the kingdom of God is here? It means that the church, it is first and foremost the vocation of the church to confront the lies of government, 
which lies of hierarchy with the truth of the image of God in all and to call our government to protect the image of God in all. Last question. And we've asked this to every guest we've had, and I'm not certain I've ever been more excited to, to hear an answer or more prepared. Mm. And the question is very simply, how would you define mm. activist? The show is called The New Activist, and it's a loaded mm. word. And I put it in the title for a reason, um, because I'm curious how people define it. And and so how mm. would you? Wow, that's a great question. I think I would define activist as one whose body is moved by the Holy Spirit to be a witness in the world, to be a witness of the presence of the kingdom of God, who the witness of the presence of Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, who came to confront the kingdoms of men that were hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth as they warred for supremacy with God. And so as I, when I went to Ferguson and I stood face-to-face with the exact same officers who were written up in the FBI report um, and the DOJ report, um, as I went to Charlottesville and I stood face to face with the militiamen who were um, who were trained to hate me. And as I push um, churches and uh, and organizations and evangelicals in general um, to adopt an understanding of the Bible that it is actually a document written by brown colonized people, my activism is is the movement of my body into the world by the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim the presence of the kingdom of God that fundamentally protects the image of God everywhere. Well, how about that? Lisa Sharon Harper. What a story and what an incredible guest to have on the show today. Miss Harper, if you are still listening, I am exceedingly grateful that you were here and you shared with all of us. Everyone, make sure that you head to freedomroad.us. That is her primary website. And from there, you can find all of her social, all of the Freedom Road social. Make sure you are subscribed and following because one, she gave us a little sneak peek of an amazing book that she's going to put out, which I cannot wait to read. But also the conversations that Freedom Road and Miss Harper are engaging in are really important and we should be paying attention. I will keep paying attention. I hope you will too. Speaking of which, we are on social media, all of the new activist social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of it is new activist is one word. New activist is a huge thanks today to propaganda. You may have noticed that the music to the show is different. Yes, propaganda scored today's episode and has agreed to score this season. And I am so grateful for him. Make sure that you are following prop his tour dates, music, merch, everything can be found at humblebeast.com or on Twitter prop hip hop. Also, he's the co-host of a great show, the red couch podcast. Look it up, subscribe, love red couch, and are really grateful for propaganda. And with that, we go back into the world on behalf of Lisa Sharon Harper and my colleagues at international justice mission. I'm Eddie Koffels. Take care, friends.